and kind of a side note here, if you, if you look at some Bibles, this is a really a huge side note, but anyway, if you look at some Bibles, um, you'll notice that there's some red font in some of them. And maybe you've like looked at someone's Bible who had red font, and you're like, why are their words red? You know, and maybe you're confused by that. But the reason why there is red in, in the Bible, um, some people, some publishers do that to denote the words that Jesus spoke. So whenever it's quoting Jesus word for word, it always puts his text in red. Uh, they kind of make it stand out and to show that it's important. So you put all those things together. Here's what we're going to do today. This is a little stretch, but you'll love it. You'll love it. Uh, first thing I want you to remember today is that when you feel like there's a gray area, you're not quite understanding what God is doing, this is what you should do. Here's something to remember. The red sections clarify the gray areas. Mmm, that was good preaching right there. The, the red sections clarify the gray areas. We can look all day at what happens and what God allows to happen. But it's when God speaks to us word for word that we get clarity around the things that we just couldn't quite piece together at first. So that's what we're doing today. And the, the section we're going to look at, there is a lot of red ink. Uh, we're going to turn to Matthew chapter 5. Um, and this is what's commonly referred to as the Sermon on the Mount. And we creatively called it that, or somebody did, because Jesus was sitting on the side of a mount uh, while he preached it. So it's called the Sermon on the Mount. And the thing is with this section, Matthew records it in his biography of Jesus. And it's not just chapter 5. The content he's writing had to spill over into chapter 6. And chapter 6 wasn't big enough either, so he had to flip, go over into chapter 7. So basically, there's three chapters of red ink where Jesus is preaching and teaching, helping people fill in the gray areas of what he's doing and why he came. So here, here we're going to dive in here. And by the way, last week, uh, Pastor Ben set this up masterfully. Like, he actually quoted the verse right before where we start, where he said, um, you are the light of the, light of the earth. earth. Um, let your light so shine before men so that they can see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. Like, that was the Sermon on the Mount. And, and Ben masterfully set that up. So we're going to look at Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, where Jesus continues with this sermon, this message. And he helps people to, people to fill in the gray area as far as what he came to do and what his method was for doing it. And in, what you're going to find, what you're going to discover is this. There's a reason Jesus interacted so differently with sinners and with religious people. You might wonder, why did Jesus welcome sinners and prostitutes and tax collectors, the filth of the earth? Why would he be with them and reject the religious people? Now, you might jump to some false conclusions, but let Jesus' words explain why he did what he did. Now, people are, are probably thinking as, as he's preaching here, we're, we're jumping halfway into his sermon almost, and he's already told people like these crazy things, like the meek shall inherit the earth. Um, blessed, are ble blessed are the people who are persecuted, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Like he's just flipping things around. And to make matters more exasperated, um, this comes after Jesus has interacted with these religious leaders, and he's been challenging their laws, their Sabbath laws, which we'll talk about more in a second. But people might be wondering, well, what is he trying to do here? By hanging out with the wrong people and by flip-flopping everything that it is that we've been taught. Is he just trying to destroy what our faith is built on? To which Jesus said this. 
He said, do not think, you're jumping the conclusions, I'm going to correct it right away, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. And he's going to go on, but we'll catch up later because the next part answers a question that we haven't asked yet. Don't think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. Um, the law and the prophets would have been immediately recognizable to the people of his original audience. But as Jesus talked about law and prophets, what he meant was the law covenant that God had given to Moses for the people, the, the, the nation of Israel. And the story goes like this. Right after God delivered them from slavery, God said, all right, I paid a price for you. I freed you from them. Now you belong to me. Here's what it's going to look like to be my people and to be, with, be in a covenant, be in a relationship with me. So God brought Moses up onto Mount Sinai. And God said, all right, here's Ten Commandments. And I got some more ceremonies and some things that will show that you're my people. And Moses came down. And there you have it. The law was established. The law covenant by which God would have a relationship with these people. God would be their God, and in turn, they would keep these commandments and these laws as part of the agreement. And the original reason God gave them this is because, hey, Israelites, you're going to have the one who ultimately fulfills these laws. But in the meantime, after years and years, centuries and centuries, these laws were taken from what they were intended to be, and they were turned into something else. You had some people, even in Jesus' day, named, um, what you often see in the Bible is they were experts in the law or teachers of the law. And these people would look at those laws that Moses gave, that Moses put in place. And they would look through every letter, every word, and just try to take out from it anything they could that would give hints as to live better by God's covenant. And then you'd have people like the Pharisees who would come and take those ideas and then put them into practice as best that they could. And Jesus shows up on the scene and he says, we need to fix some things here, but do not think I came to abolish what it is you think you love. I have not, not come to abolish any of that. For, it's not just my opinion, he goes on. He says, for, I tell you truly, this is just like a truth thing. No matter what I want, no matter what you want, this is a divine truth. Until heaven and earth disappear. Like if you wake up tomorrow morning and all the universe is just gone, then that's a sign that what Jesus says is about to happen has happened. Until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, not the dot of an I, will by means disappear from the law, the covenant law that God has established with the nation of Israel. This is just a divine truth. It doesn't matter what we want. I can't abolish it because this is what God has put in place. What God has put in place, no one has the right to replace. And here's his summary, verse 19, or here's his application. He says, therefore, anyone who sets aside or literally just loosens up a little bit, wiggles it a little bit out of place, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others to do accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. You break these laws, you teach others to break them too, God will not have favor on you. But then he says the opposite. But if you keep these laws, next verse, if you keep these laws, whoever practices them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of God. If you keep these commandments, and if you teach others to keep them too, be expert keepers and expert teachers. 
God will have favor on you and you'll have a right relationship with him. Which sounds so contrary to everything else Jesus said, doesn't it? But that's what we're designing, that's, that's what we're doing here. We're, we're building up this, this curiosity. Well, why is Jesus putting it this way? Because isn't there this thing called by grace? And it's not what we do. But there's a reason Jesus is doubling down on this so hardly. Then he, so, so he gets to this part and... So the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, right, the expert teachers and the expert keepers, they're probably like, this is great. Our business is going to boom. People are going to be coming to, to, to us and asking us what these laws mean and how to keep them. And it's like, yeah, 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 keep going, keep going. But then Jesus, if he had a microphone, he would have dropped it at this point. He said this, I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses, not just meets, but surpasses that of the expert keepers, the Pharisees, and the expert teachers, the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. You have no place with God if your righteousness does not surpass theirs. Now Jesus is building this up, building this up as he teaches these people from the mountainside. But here's the first conclusion that we come to. You see, he's not shying away from this. People may be accusing him and coming to the conclusion that he's just against the, com- the commandments and against the law because he's hanging out with sinful people. But here's the second thing I want you to remember from today is that Jesus vehemently upheld God's covenant law because this was a law that God put in place and no one, no one has the right to replace it or take it away. Jesus is building up this truth so that he can open up for them something even better. And now now the the people might be thinking, man, this leaves us in kind of a bad place. (laughs) Because we thought the Pharisees, I mean, they had their stuff together. And the teachers of the law, they're pretty smart. But how can we exceed even their level of righteousness and understanding and how they keep all of these laws and commands. We don't even know half of them. How do we start? And Jesus says, well, it's about to get worse. Jesus goes on. You see, the thing with the Pharisees and the teachers of the law was that they had taken these principles and they had formed and fashioned them into a way that people could keep the laws and commands. But Jesus says, no, no, no. We need to back up a little bit and get to the true nature of what this covenant law was really all about. Before things can get better, things have to get a little bit worse. So Matthew 5.21, he goes on and he gives several examples. He says, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago. Um, Translation, you know Moses said this. You know that when Moses came from the mountain with God's law, this is what Moses had for the people. It was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. And the people listening to this, they're like, yeah, get those murderers, Jesus. Get them out of town. Get them out of here. They have no place in God's kingdom. And even today we might say, yeah, that's a fair law that we should enforce. There should be some penalty or, or, or judgment in place for those who, who take the life of someone else. But before the people can get too puffed up and how great they've been avoiding murdering people, Jesus continues this way. He says, but I tell you, so Moses said this, but I tell you, I tell you, that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. And not just a courtroom judgment. Not just the consequences of bad relationship judgment. But with this section and with every other uh, example Jesus gives, he says this is a hell 
judgment. This is a God judgment against you. That if you hate someone in their heart, that's just as bad as murdering them. To which people might say, well, who are you to replace what Moses put in place? We had a perfectly fine working commandment. Do not murder. We could handle that. But why are you changing it? And Jesus is like, well, I'm not changing it. I'm just bringing it back to what it used to be. And being the master teacher he was, he continued with several examples. He went through several commandments. Another one he went through was the sixth one where he said, you have heard it said to the people long ago, you've heard it said through Moses that you shall not commit adultery. And probably like 90% of the people in the crowd were like, yeah, get those adulterers, Jesus. And they're, you know, they feel good that they've kept this one. But then Jesus continues, but I tell you, Anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has committed adultery with her in his heart. And again, he goes on. This isn't just a consequences thing. This isn't just bad for your marriage relationship. This is a judgment thing against, between you and God. See, Jesus is taking all these things, and law after law, commandment after commandment, he says, you Pharisees and teachers of the law have set the bar here, but guess what? It is way up here. To which the people that day, (laughs) to this day, have to be wondering, well, how in the world are we supposed to do that? It's funny because preparing for this message, I read some commentaries, and some of them said some people outright reject this section because the moral and ethical standards are so high, it's impossible. This must be talking about heaven or some other future place because it certainly is not the reality now. And as the people are listening to this message being preached from the mount, they met, they're thinking, well, why don't you just go ahead and just tell us to be perfect, right? Because that's basically what you're telling us. So Jesus said, all right, verse 48, be perfect. Therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect, this is what the covenant law is trying to show you, that there must be perfection in every area of life, and not just outwardly, but in the heart. And that was the first thing that would have struck the people both in that day and in this day. Well, how do you expect us to reach that level of perfection? Certainly, there's no way for us to enter the kingdom of God. And so you look through chapter 5, lots of red ink. You look at chapter 6, all red ink. Jesus continues to spell out what it means, what it looks like to live according to this law. And then you get into chapter 7, all red ink again. But here we start to see another conclusion. Because Jesus said it's not just about you being perfect with your Father in heaven, but there's another dynamic that is a summary of what it means to keep the law and the prophets. He says this in chapter 7, So in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. Because this sums up what we've been talking about. This sums up the law and the prophets. How many of you learned this in kindergarten? Be kind to others as you would have them be kind to you, right? There's like this reciprocal kindness. I didn't see you raise your hand, Tom. I knew there was something missing with with you. Yeah. Um, We learn this young, right? Just the standard, the baseline standard. We just want to treat others as they, as we would have them treat us. And that's a summary of what God was trying to accomplish here. The, 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 the holiness, the perfection, is simply being able to put others above yourself. But here's the thing. Even as Jesus said this, the people had to be thinking, that's not going to work. I can't do that. It hasn't worked. The, the people I'm around, <laughs> I can't be kind to them. Because the people around me aren't kind 
to me. And, and it, it's this opposite reciprocal effect where we get the opposite. Which leaves us in a lot of trouble, doesn't it? You see, Jesus was telling the people, I'm not here to abolish these commands, not at all. But guys, it's worse than you think. He didn't come to abolish it, but rather, number three, third thing I want you to remember, Jesus restored the law, restored that covenant law to its fullest force imaginable. He didn't make it into something new. He just refreshed them on what it was originally designed to be. This was where God was telling the people to meet the standard of righteousness that is acceptable to me demands a complete reform of the heart and behavior and mind and mouth. Everything. Everything. So people are left hopeless. And people in this room are left hopeless, right? Like, what does this mean for us? Now remember, there's a, a phrase at the beginning that answers a question that we haven't asked yet. And we're going to get there. We're going to get there. But I just want you to soak this in because in this moment, people have to be raising their hands to Jesus on that mountainside and say, well, what hope is there for us? Like, how do we get there? What are our odds? Like, what are the odds of us making it? And Jesus would have responded with this, verse 13. He said, well, wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction. Many people will find it. Lots of people will go that route. But small is the gate and narrow is the road that leads to life. And only a few are going to find it. Well, where is this road and how do we find it? Well, let's back up. See, Jesus has made a very strong case that the law and the covenant of Moses at that time was still in full effect and the force of it needed to be recognized. And here was why. Well, what do we do with the law that we can't keep? And Jesus himself answers that. Back to verse 17. He said, don't think I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them. But here's the key to the whole thing. I have come to fulfill them. See, the law was put in place, and, and uh, the Apostle Paul describes it like this. That, that covenant law with all of its commandments and ceremonies and stuff, that was kind of like a guardian to kind of guide the people along until the fulfillment would come. And Jesus said, I have not come to get rid of that guardian. I've come to release it of its duties, to, to fulfill everything that was expected, to meet that level of righteousness. And then he goes on, verse, uh, verse 18. Uh, we read the first part before. He said, I tell you, heaven and earth will dis until heaven and earth disappear, this law will by no means disappear until everything has been accomplished. And then after saying this, instead of lowering the bar to making it a manageable thing to keep, Jesus says, no, the bar is up here. Everything needs to be accomplished, and I am the one who will do it. And in case his disciples didn't get the point, on the night before his death, he was sitting down at them, with them at the Passover meal. Jesus was kind of gathering his disciples. And uh, the Apostle John, when he wrote his account of Jesus' life, um, like this, it's interesting because uh, this uh, goes on for like five chapters of just dialogue Jesus had with his disciples. But one thing he told them is, hey guys, I'm going to be going somewhere and you're going to follow me. And one of them raised their hands. We don't know where you're going. How can we follow you? Jesus says, okay, if you haven't gotten it by now, I am the way. You see, the covenant law brought you up to this point. But when it comes to your relationship with God, I am the way. I am the fulfiller of everything God requires of you. I am the way. I am the truth. I am 
to life. And instead of pointing them back to centuries and centuries of tradition and laws and ceremonies, Jesus didn't say, follow them if you want the way to the Father in heaven. But Jesus said, no, follow me. I am the way and the truth and the life. And that's what he did for you too. I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. He ushered in a new covenant. He replaced what Moses had put in place, but only after he fulfilled every last bit of it. Now one quick thing for you, then we'll give you the fourth thing on the screen here. One quick thing for you is this. The other thing that Jesus said the night before he died, recognizing all the commandments, all the regulations are about to be set aside because a new covenant was going to be uh, invoked through the blood of Jesus. He sat down with his disciples, and again, he said, Hey, guys, I have a new commandment for you. Moses brought down all that stuff from the Mount, uh, Mount Sinai, and you had all these ceremonies, but put that all aside. One commandment. One. And they had to be leaning in, like, okay, what is it? What is it? And Jesus said, I want you to love one another. Love one another not the way you'd want them to love you. That's the old law. See, this new covenant raises it even further above. I want you to love one another as I have loved you. He completely changed the motivation for wanting to live a life in line with God's will and God's purpose. This is not about earning his favor. It's not about meeting a standard of righteousness. This is about reflecting what God has done for you through Jesus. He set you free from laws and ceremonies, and he's given you a relationship with God through his suffering and death and resurrection. Last point to remember here, number four. Jesus lived under the law to fulfill it and to replace it. Now, this might bring up questions like, well, what do we do with the Old Testament? What do we do with the commandments and all the ceremonies? You know what? They still have lots of value because each of them gives us a different flavor about or different side of who Jesus was and what he had to accomplish. He was the Passover lamb. He was the one who, who atoned for the sins of the world. You look at each law, each regulation, each one shows the level of righteousness which Jesus won for you. And even to this day, each one gives a hint as to what it means to love one another and to love God. But as you go home today, I want to wrap it up with this thought. You see, this brings extraordinary clarity to these gray areas of life. Like, why would Jesus interact with these people? And why would he stay away from the religious people? Well, it's because of this. He didn't see people in terms of rule keepers and rule breakers. He looked at people in terms of who is trusting him to be the fulfiller. Who was leaving their life in Jesus' hands? And those were the people whom he celebrated. So what would it look like for you to go home and live in such a way? Some quick homework is that some of you maybe have some regret, you have some guilt, or maybe let's just call it a sin that you've got in your heart or that you've been wrestling with and you don't know what to do with it. There's a couple of ways that we usually cope with stuff like that that aren't healthy. One way is that we minimize the, the sin or the guilt of it. For example, if you're pulled over doing 54 in a 40-mile-an-hour zone, you might say, well, that was just a stupid law to begin with. It should be 50, right? Or you could say, well, the weather was fine. There, weren't, there wasn't any other traffic. I was justified in, you know, stretching that limit a little bit, right? We can always try to do that to minimize the guilt we feel. We feel. 
You know, the other thing we might do is we might try to minimize the consequences of it. Yeah, I made a mistake. Yeah, I sinned. But at least I didn't hurt other people. And we try to minimize our guilt that way. But the conclusion that we reach at the end of the Sermon on the Mount invites you to find a better way to go through sin and regret and guilt. And it's this. Instead of minimizing what you've done or minimizing the consequences of what you've done, why don't you just let the law come through in its fullest force? Because when we minimize our end of it, we also minimize what Jesus did to undo it. But when you are open and confess to God, you know what, I am guilty, there's no excuse, and this guilt deserves eternal punishment. What that does then is that increases, increases, increases how you view the grace of God that he showed to you through his son, Jesus Christ. Will you trust him with that? Would you trust the one who came to fulfill everything for you with your life, knowing that he's already fulfilled it all for you? Imagine what that kind of life would be like. Now, maybe at this point you're wondering to yourself, yeah, I don't know if I'm really a Christian. I don't know if I have faith or I know I've kind of had faith, but then I didn't have faith. And it's kind of this complicated thing. If you're wondering where your faith is at, you need to come back next week for part seven because we're going to see an episode from Jesus' life where he interacted with people just like you who had their faith shaken quite a bit. But after he addressed them, he showed them that there's no reason to be afraid but every reason to have hope. Let's pray. Dear Father in heaven, when the time was right, you sent various servants, um, one of them being Moses, uh, to establish a new covenant with the Israelite people, a covenant, an agreement, a, a set of laws that would ultimately point them to their Savior. We thank you that we have that Savior now in our rearview mirror, that we've seen him come. We've seen him fulfill all things for us. That he didn't just skirt away from the law or kind of put it away, but he fulfilled it for us so that we can have a good relationship with you. Give us all the confidence and the boldness to be able to lay before you our fullest sins, our fullest guilt, because that's when we see the fullness of our Savior who fulfilled all things for us. We pray that in Jesus' name.